Support for this podcast comes from the IT experts at CDW, people who get it. At CDW, we get the future workplace works differently. Today's my first day back. Almost forgot what floor we were on. Understandable. But with modern health and safety technology orchestrated by CDW, the future can work better. Technology like thermal screening and occupancy tracking enables employees to walk confidently into the office. Wait, this isn't my floor. Is this even my building? Even if it's been a while. IT orchestration by CDW. People who get it. Find out more at cdw.com slash future of work. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect, there are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, America, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Hey, science fans. I have another fantastic podcast to recommend to you guys. The Waterline Podcast. Everything you need to know about the science of water. Have we managed to develop the most sustainable irrigation techniques? Can water be the bringer of peace? Can flushing your toilet light up your house? The answer to all of these questions and many more in the Waterline podcast, which is an initiative of the Israel New Tech as part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. It's a new podcast that, uh, is, that is created to communicate the many facets of water. So please check out an episode I've uh, I've checked out several. I actually went back and listened to the very first episode, which gives you a nice overview of uh, sources of fresh water all around the world, rivers, lakes, underground sources, and to see how, how delicate they are, how prone they are to contamination. This is exceptionally important stuff for our world and our future, and I highly recommend this podcast search waterline podcast on itunes or in your android podcast app welcome everybody perhaps the best here we are episode today this is a very subjective thing but it uh it was one of the ones i was absolutely the most excited about been trying to get robert sapolsky on for years since before the podcast even started he is about my favorite scientist out there and his new book behave which we're going to be touching on is if this if this podcast were a class it would be a prerequisite it would be required reading Uh, fortunately for you this is not a class there is no required reading so you're welcome to get the book behave and read it for fun in your own time at your own pace and you'll enjoy the hell out of it if you like this podcast uh, I can't imagine why you wouldn't like this book. Many of the things covered in the book are the things that we'll be exploring in depth in the future and already have explored in the past on the podcast. And so this is a real awesome uh, episode. So thank you and enjoy. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody.
everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Listeners, I may notice that I'm exceptionally excited today. We have a very special episode. I'm sure you've heard me cite his work in other episodes in the past. been trying for three years to get the elusive Robert Sapolsky on the show. He is a neuroscientist at Stanford, which, by the way, you can on YouTube, there's uh, a course on human behavioral biology that that you can check out that is everything that you need to know about life summed up in a one little YouTube course. And he splits time in, in Kenya as a primatologist. And it, in fact, is I think yours is the only memoir that I've ever read, a primate's memoir. Really, really interesting. I'm not a memoir person, but a fantastic book and, and move. Also talked about uh, his book, uh, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Thank you, Robert, for joining me today. Well, glad it finally worked out and it's great to be in the same time zone as you yeah yeah I, I'm, I'm basically never in the bay area and so the few rare occasions that i have been here and reached out it's actually uh i was trying to reach out to you last summer and i kept on getting auto replies saying you were you're busy trying to finish your book and pass the deadline and and i kept on getting these auto replies and then your publicist sent me uh, i got an advanced copy of the book and now i realize why there was a delay 700 90 pages yep yep we, we decided the big psychological barrier was 800 pages so we, <laughs> we had to get rid of all the pronouns or something and that brought it down to 790 <laughs> uh, the book is called behave the biology of humans at our best and worst so I've been doing this podcast for uh, two and a half years, interviewing a bunch of bunch of scientists and uh, about various all sorts of topics in many different fields. So it's science is great because you have all these nice little uh, things to entertain your friends with fun facts at dinner parties. Uh, but but what why is it important for people to know about behavioral biology? I mean, when are you going to use this stuff in real life? Okay, so time to trot out the uh, appeal I would make to our present administration, perhaps, not to gut science funding for things like behavioral scientists. Okay, so here's the deal, my, my official soundbite. Everybody needs to learn about this stuff because everybody is a human behavioral biologist, tacitly. You serve on a jury and you are making judgments about what is changeable and not and what is volitional in people. You vote for a bond bill for a school you know advanced thing or like oh are there certain kids who are more or less readily educated than others are there certain learning deficits that are unchangeable versus volitional you you have a family member that's got a depression and you're at this behavioral biologist crossroad of do you get fed up with them for being indulgent in this sort of funk that they're in come on just pull yourself together or are you going to be able to recognize this is a biochemical disorder i mean we're all every time we're trying to make sense of the behavior of somebody around us and we're judging somebody else's behavior we're implicitly being behavioral biologists so we might as well know something about it that makes sense. Um, so I, I've interviewed because I sometimes have multiple uh, scientists on a given episode. I've I've interviewed um, probably a hundred and thirty or so different people, and um, it's it, it's the more that I do it, the more it kind of strikes me as funny. I'll be talking with someone in a specific field 
um, that is talking about something that we've discussed before, and they'll have a complete opposite take as someone else that I've had on before. And um, not only that, but they're uh, uh, sometimes they're presenting the information as if there is just simply no other way of looking at it, and this is the one true way of looking at this particular um, aspect of of human nature. Um, what are what are some of the problems with with this kind of categorical thinking? Great. Well, categorical thinking is very good if you're a scientist who's trying to get tenure because you've got to spend your life not only within one field, but usually just researching one unbelievably narrow, obscure little sliver of the universe. And so that you can be, you know, the person they're going to cite for the next three centuries, whenever that subject comes up. I mean, scientists are trained to think in like narrow categories um, of necessity. And we all use categories like that to enhance our memory. We put labels on things. Trouble is when you think categorically, you are very readily forgetting that it's totally arbitrary boundaries that you're usually putting around your categories. The difference between liking and loving, the difference between a moderately not okay behavior and an appalling one, the difference between, I don't know, just in the physical world, the visual spectrum, when does blue turn into green? And it turns out different cultures, different language groups put a boundary at different points there. Okay, that's fine. So we call this blue and this side of it is green and some other culture slides it a little bit over. But it turns out where you put those arbitrary boundaries really affects your thinking. If two little factoids fall into the same category, both versions are blue or both versions of what we call like an abnormal behavior or something, uh, the bias that we have is we then underestimate how different they are. We have trouble telling the difference. And if two factoids come on either side of a boundary, we do exactly the opposite. We unconsciously exaggerate their differences. And as soon as you start putting boundaries of categories of gender and race and ethnicity and that sort of thing, the brain is off and running, distorting how similar or how different two different facts are. So can you give an, so how do you go about breaking down a, a given behavior? So a behavior just happened. How, how do you explain how that behavior happened? Okay. The pull that you get, the categorical approach, sort of the opposite direction of what I think is needed is, you know, you decide here is the neurochemical that explains everything in the world of behavior. Or if you come from another discipline, here is the hormone or here's the gene or here's the fetal environment or here's the evolutionary mechanism that explains everything. And, you know, it's obviously not that. You look at a behavior, somebody does something or other, they do something that's appalling, or they do something that's like wonderfully heroic, or like most of us behaving, they do something like somewhere in between. And, you know, the question becomes, why did that behavior occur? And that's actually a bunch of questions. What went on in that person's brain one second before the behavior? Okay, so that's neuroscience and people know different parts of the brain do this or that and what they have to do with not just like making you bend your fingers when you want to, but social behavior, normal or abnormal. Okay, so that's the world of neuroscience, but no brain is an island. So you then have to ask, well, what was going on seconds to minutes before in the environment of that person? Okay, you see something threatening that 
tends to get us into an aroused state. You see something wonderful. Okay, visual stimuli, that's great. What's the punchline of that whole area is there's sensory stuff going on all the time that we haven't a clue of that's affecting behavior to like amazing extents. Okay, but then let's look like hours to days before. What were the hormones in your bloodstream? Because depending on what their levels are, they'll make you more or less sensitive to that sensory information that then triggers your brain to do something. Now, going back, you know, weeks to months, your brain changes in response to that time span of experience. If you spend a whole summer learning how to juggle, like your motor cortex is going to rewire so so that you can handle that, your brain for better or worse will change. So what kind of brain with what parts of your brain are all jumpy and hyper responsive and other parts are all sluggish? What are you bringing to the table here now for those hormones to modify your sensitivity to sensory stimuli to affect your brain within the one second span? And from there, you're off and running. What happened in adolescence, childhood, back when you were a fetus? What about when all you were was a collection of genes? What do genes have to do with behavior? Tons, as it turns out, but a whole lot less than a lot of people think. But then you got to jump further back. Like, what culture were you raised? Why did that culture evolve over the last 500 years in some particular ecosystem? And then you're back millions of years to evolutionary pressure. So basically, if you go in with these sort of ideological blinders, genes explain everything. Hormones explain everything. You're not going to have a clue what's going on with behavior. Well, seems easy enough. Um, <laughs> I, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so to to add more confusion to all of this, uh, uh, humans uh, humans also don't uh, aren't as easy to measure as some of uh, some of these other creatures out there. You have something like um, mating practices, where you have a lot of species that are either turn tournament species or monogamous species and and humans are are falling somewhere in between why all the grief exactly and you you go go and discover a new primate species that like no scientist ever seen before and if you're oriented to some of these sort of features you look at them for about 10 seconds or so and you already know something about their sexual lives, their patterns of giving birth, how high their levels of aggression are, whether males take care of infants, whether females cheat on the males. Because in this very reliable way, as you mentioned, uh, social species tend to fall into two categories. Nice pair bonding male and female together for life. They raise kids together. It's nice and heartwarming hallmark cards, swans. And there's a small number of primates. At the other end, there's these tournament species where males are fighting it out all the time for access to females. Females are choosing males just for good genes and good sperm because they're not getting anything more than that from the guy. Totally classic, two categories. And then you look at humans and by every measure from like nutty stuff, whether eye teeth in males on the average are a lot longer than in females to patterns of certain genetic diseases to we're neither. We're not a pair bonding species. We're not a tournament species. We're more in the middle than any primate out there. And that makes perfect sense to anybody who's like a cultural anthropologist. We got some cultures that have monogamy and are actually monogamous. We have some cultures that practice monogamy or anything, but we got 
polygamous cultures. There's a couple of polyandrous cultures on earth where one woman has multiple husbands. You had everything in between. And like none of this is surprising to anyone who's like ever read a romance novel because like all of that's driven by the fact that we're somewhere in between and some of us are more somewhere on the spectrum at one direction or the other. And none of this is surprising to divorce lawyers. And that defines what we're about as a species in lots of ways. We're confused and somewhere in between the normal categories. We're fighting over who we want to marry. (laughs) Yes, which makes very little sense to a baboon. (laughs) Um, So it takes something like uh, uh, aggression. This this seems... uh, this seems easy. Aggression is this uh, such a negative sounding word. So all aggression is bad. So you just got to get rid of this aggression stuff. But it's a bit more complicated than that. Yeah, because like if aggression were like, I don't know, AIDS or Alzheimer's disease or childhood cancer, it would be absolutely simple because the prescription just is get as many scientists working on this as possible and then get rid of it. Yay, sock vaccine that completely takes care. But that's not the case with aggression because the trouble is uh, we don't dislike aggression. We dislike the wrong kinds. And when it's the right kind, we give people medals. When it's the right kind, we vote them into office. We like disproportionately mate with them. Not, not something I've personally done, but what you find in those cases is when it's the right kind of aggression, we love it. We have billion dollar football teams named after, you know, lions and tigers and bears and Vikings and all sorts of marauding things. Um, but of course the problem winds up being not just that there's bad aggression and good aggression, but that we differ so much as to what counts as good aggression. And of course, one person's terrorist is somebody else's freedom fighter. Mm. Um, actually, I'm, I'm just going to, this is going to be maybe a bit of a tangent because, uh, you mentioned fighting, fighting for metals. Um, this is something that is so interesting to me, the idea of, of someone fighting over a symbol, over a flag, over something that uh, this, this seems like a particularly human uh, activity. Yeah. What, why is, how is this happening? Why is it that humans atta- are attaching so much to this little bit of ribbon? Or it, It's insanely interesting. I mean, as far as we can tell, we officially became a symbolic species, I don't know, 50,000 years ago or so, when people started like painting on cave walls. Those were not horses. Those were pictures of horses. And like the goal there was like, as we say, to capture like the likeness of an animal that you, you symbolically take pigments and throw them on a cave wall. And you've just like gotten some approximation of a real thing without it being a real thing and sort of thing that like, you know, 20th century art historians have had a field day with the difference between the actual thing and symbols and how far we could separate them. What turns out is insofar as we are this insanely symbolic species, uh, we put a bunch of ink on a piece of paper and that could be a story that moves us to tears or we put different types of ink on papers and it's now a music score for an orchestra to play. Just all these ways of encoding experience like that. Okay. So we do symbols while they're insanely abstract, except they're not because as you said, 
People are willing to kill over symbols. People die over symbols. Gangs kill each other over colors of clothing. Or people kill each other if they're an Islamic fundamentalist and they're bursting into Charlie Hebdo office in Paris, kill somebody over a cartoon of somebody who lived, what, 1400 years ago? Or, as you said, people are willing to kill and die over flags. You look at like the history of military regiments that always have like some 12 year old kid who's the flag bearer or something and the kid's dead in no time and then some other soldier grabs the company flag because that's essential and they're promptly shot and somebody else grabs it and the, and somebody from the other side captures their flag and are, and they're shot and they're killing each other over a piece of cloth so the question of course becomes why are symbols like such a big deal and the reason is I think because our brains have only been doing symbols for about 50,000 years, which is not a very long time. Okay, so you come up with something symbolic. You come up with something abstract like the notion of warm or cold personalities or the notion of being morally outraged at something. I mean, these are fairly modern things in the terms of primates. So, okay, you've come up with moral disgust, the notion that, you know, a baboon could do something so crappy to some other baboon that four or five baboons will chase him around the field for a while. But none of them will feel viscerally disgusted by what he's done. None of them could be disgusted by the ideology and the troop of baboons on the other side of the river. That's like a very human thing. Okay, so we've just invented moral disgust, and that's 50,000 years ago. That's an eye blink or whatever. Can you go invent a new part of the brain that does that? No, absolutely not. You like have some evolutionary committee meeting and you got to find some place to shoehorn this stuff into the brain. And what was the solution? There's this part of the brain called the insular cortex and any run of the mill mammal, what they do is if they eat some rotten, disgusting, poisonous food, the insular cortex senses it and triggers you to throw up or gag or spit it out, or whatever. And that's great. And it keeps you from like getting killed by toxins. And it works that way in humans, except it works that way in us also. If we hear about something that's morally repulsive and the insular cortex activates and we feel sick to our stomachs. And, oh, okay, that's a metaphor, except when it's real enough. I mean, I remember, when was it in in Newton, Connecticut, that, like, mass shooting at that kindergarten in 20... When I heard about that, like an awful lot of people there, I felt queasy. That was not a metaphor of feeling sick to my stomach, but we get viscerally that worked up at that point. And that's because that handful of neurons there in the insular cortex can't tell the difference between you've just bitten into something disgusting or you're hearing about some appalling genocide that's turning your stomach. Yeah, it's amazing. Even as you're talking, you you're talking about uh, primates doing, um, you know, some despicable, aggressive behavior or cheap shot or something like that and and you called it crappy behavior <laughs> Ooh, you are right <laughs> you're absolutely right because it's not literally fecal in nature right. yes you're well our language is full of metaphors and that one was a perfect example of where emotionally that one comes from we're having a very deep conversation right now <laughs> <laughs> yes way down in a well of metaphor uh, yeah, it's, it's it's always strikes me as uh, 
it's funny people people want to get high like why would high necessarily be exactly a good thing and why do scientists try to stand underneath things by understanding the nature that it's yeah it's just full of metaphors all over the place um do, do you think do you think that it i mean there must be a million different factors going into this. Do you think because it kind of because we've we've uh, fought against we've had to kind of fight against gravity that kind of rising above it. Uh, they, we use these terms rising above like up is always sure. such a good thing. Heaven is up. Absolutely. And don't we all aim for having lofty principles or that sort of. Yeah, it's it's just metaphors all over the place. So, of course, the question becomes like. Okay, on a nuts and bolts level, how did that evolve? The brain is not an inv- evolution is not an inventor; it's a tinkerer. So here comes this newfangled moral disgust thing, and like, okay, give me some duct tape. We're going to stick it into this part of the brain that does like gustatory disgust. And there's a whole bunch of examples like that. So what's that good for? In it's mighty hard to get really like outraged and willing to step out of the crowd and do something scary and brave and dangerous when someone is being wronged. And like, like, are you out of your mind? Someone else will take care of it. Oops. I didn't really see it. I'm going to look the other way. Um, it's very challenging to really do the harder thing when it's the right thing to do. And when it's in a moral realm, it sure helps if your stomach's in an uproar at the time. It sure helps if it's this viscerally real thing that has like your body on fire with a wrong that needs to be righted or some such thing. So I think it's great in that regard. Where it's awful is what we wind up doing is confusing people who do things that are simply different from us with those things being disgusting. We mistake repugnance as being sort of a measure of sort of moral worth, or we decide that feeling disgusted by something is a pretty good litmus test for deciding whether it's wrong or not. And of course, the trouble is that what's getting one kind of person disgusted by a lifestyle is somebody else's perfectly normal way of living or praying or loving or some such thing like that. It's, it's this moving target of disgust. So it has this double-edged sword. And probably the realm where it's got it most extreme is every good like ideologue and dictator and genocidal leader in history has understood the way to have it succeed with, you know, glowing success is if you can get them, whoever the them is that you're trying to target, who's taking over the economy, who's ruining, who defeated us in the last war by cheating, what if you can get people to the point that when you invoke them, they feel disgusted because they're just like maggots. They're like cancer. They're like cockroaches. They're like something infectious. If you can get people to the point where you mention the thems and people's insular cortexes activate, you're halfway there to getting your mob with the cudgels ready to do in those folks. That's one of the more frustrating things about human nature to me is this idea of... of us and them that's uh, it's um very escape uh, kind of inescapable you you think that uh i mean we we like to pat ourselves on the back we have this amazing language stuff and and we are able to build rockets and <laughs> go to the moon and all these incredible things and we still have this very very primitive just 
us and them in and out group behavior. I mean, I'm talking about those people right now, not me. Um, <laughs> do that. Yes, you're you're way loftier than your approach to life. Um, what what is what are things? So there's um, there's studies where where you can show someone where you can trigger disgust by showing um say feces or sewage or whatever it might be and then you give them a um some some test on how they feel about gay rights or affirmative action or whatever it might be and and people that had been triggered are their disgust has been triggered they they tend to be more um in tune with this outgroup kind of they they tend to be more sensitive to this outgroup kind of stimulus is is there are there ways to prime it the other way? Great. I mean you're one of my all time favorite studies is you put somebody in a room and give them a questionnaire about sort of their political opinions about a whole range of things. And if there's a smelly garbage can in the room, people become more socially conservative. They're more judgmental. They're more condemning of things that are different from them. It doesn't do a thing to your views about sort of economic policy or like what our trade policy should be with like outer Mongolia, but things where it's at a juncture of what do you think of these people who do something very different from you? Is it just different or are you going to decide it's wrong because you're getting visceral stuff happening? And if there's smelly garbage, people become more hostile to outgroups and their like social practices. And it's like so crazy because those neurons are sitting there and they're getting confused between smelly garbage, yuck, and those people eat different stuff than we do. They eat animals we consider to be adorable or sacred or disgusting. And whoa, because like my neurons can't tell the difference between the smelly garbage and that, I'm more likely to say, I can't quite tell you why, but it's just damn wrong that those people live that way. It's just wrong that they do that. So, so a bit of sanitation and maybe we'll all get along a little bit better. Okay, another another finding that I love in that realm is you look at liberals and progressives and yeah, they got different attitudes about how economics should work and whether about the future and the best times are past, but there's all this visceral stuff. On the average, social conservatives have a lower threshold for a gag reflex than do progressives. More things disgust them. You look in the homes of liberals and progressives and versus conservatives, and conservatives keep more cleaning products in their houses because more things feel soiled. It's, wait, your political viewpoint is built around the fact that, say, you're less bothered by getting your fingers like sticky after like opening up a jar of jam or something, and that's a predictor that you're more likely to be a progressive than a conservative. Yeah, we got all this body stuff going on all the time. And the notion that we're these highfalutin abstract brains separate from all this biological yuck is like sheer nonsense. It's one and the same. So I have, I have something that I, uh, I want to ask you about to set up this question. I'm going to have to tie what we've been talking about in with how, 
the stress response system works. And so I, I know we're already halfway through. <laughs> and so um, I, I have, a, a, this is probably a fair amount to set up, but can you kind of give the the gist of, of uh, why zebras don't get ulcers and how the stress response system works? Okay. Um, I'm sure just by chance you've asked that since I've spent about the last 30 years obsessing over that area. Um, my main area of research. Okay. So stress response, something stressful happens. Uh, you secrete adrenaline. Uh, that's the tip of the iceberg. You secrete 11 other hormones that are involved in the stress response. Parts of your body activate your nervous system. You got the stress response. And the thing that totally puzzles people and sort of making sense of where stress-related diseases come from is you turn on that stress response if you're some zebra who's just been like ripped open by a lion and you turn on the same exact stress response if you're that lion who's half starved and you're sprinting after a zebra and then you turn on the same exact stress response if like you got to pay your taxes two days from now some abstract thing or you're thinking about global warming or refugees on the other side of the planet or mortality or some movie character who was in a scary scene in the movie you watched last night and your heart was pounding away because of adrenaline we turn on the same stress response as does a zebra or a lion but we humans turn it on for psychological reasons and the punchline of the whole field is the stress response is exactly what you want to have going on in your life and your body if you're that zebra or that lion. And it's the last thing on earth you want to have going on if you're sitting there in traffic and you're crazed or any such psychological stressor. I mean, what the stress response is about is you mobilize energy from all the storage sites in your body, you deliver that energy to whichever muscles are going to save your life. You do that by increasing your heart rate, your blood pressure, your breathing rate. You turn off everything in your body that's not essential for surviving the next three minutes. Growth, tissue repair, reproduction, any of that stuff, you think more clearly. All of this like is wonderful for the zebra or the lion. So, okay, you're that zebra, you're running for your life, lion's coming after you, and if your blood pressure is 180 over 120 or whatever a zebra is at that point, I haven't a clue, like, that's a good thing. That's saving your life. And if your blood pressure is 180 over 120 every single morning for an hour and when you're stuck in traffic, that's something that's not only, like, useless to you because you're not actually running at that point, but you're now suffering from high blood pressure. Same exact logic with all these other realms. If you constantly mobilize energy, not because you're sprinting away from a lion, but again, because of psychological stress, you're more at risk for adult onset diabetes. If you, you know, are a zebra running for your life, it's not a big deal if you ovulate tonight instead of right now while the lion's chasing you, shut down reproduction. Do it chronically for psychological reasons and females' cycles become irregular. Males have erectile dysfunction. It's just built around the fact that for like 99% of beasts on this planet, stress is about three minutes of screaming terror in the savannah, after which it's either over with you or over with, and we turn it on for 30-year mortgages instead, and it just chews away at our bodies, and that's why we get stress-related diseases. So now to tie that in with what we were talking about with, um, uh, with disgust, so say you... Uh, uh, 
say you live in this hunter-gatherer environment and it's surrounded by all sorts of diseases, parasites, all these other threats, and, and you clean and clean, and there's nothing you can ever do to, uh, to get rid of this, uh, all of these threats. And then uh, one day someone comes around and uh, discovers the stuff Lysol, and you're able to, you're <laughs> able to get rid of all of, this, uh, all, all of these diseases and all of these threats that, that you, you've never evolved in an environment where this uh, in such a sterile environment, and, and now your immune system is kind of set up to, uh, to handle X number of threats, what it always has throughout your evolutionary history. And now it's not there, and now it's starting to perceive threats like dander that aren't actual threats yeah, having exactly. kind of these false alarms uh, do you think that we um, are experiencing some kind of psychological allergies in this same way absolutely um, another one of my all-time favorite studies uh, get volunteers to come in and either have them tell you about some totally neutral, boring thing they did in the past or some like good Samaritan thing or some totally crummy, rotten thing they did to somebody else afterward. And, you know, they tell you about it. And then afterward you say, geez, thanks for volunteering for this study. We can't pay you, but we can either give you, look, here's a pencil that says the Department of Psychology on it. You can have a pencil set or you can have this hand package of hand wipes here. And if people were just sitting there telling you about something rotten and horrible they did to somebody else, they disproportionately choose the hand wipes. They feel soiled. You give them a choice to go wash their hands at that point, people are more likely to do that. This makes perfect sense to Lady Macbeth. Out, out, damp spot. You've got to like wash your hands clean of the act that you did. Cleanliness is next to godliness. We're confusing the physical with the metaphorical there once again. Does it ever go the other way where you come walking out of a church or a Whole Foods or whatever your sacred institution <laughs> is and you're patting yourself on the back for, um, for your moral high ground and, and then uh, you see someone trip and fall over and you're like, well, I, I just did my good deed for the day. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, the same exact group that did that study then did a follow-up. Now have somebody, a volunteer, come in and tell you about something rotten, horrible they did and exactly where they would now be craving to wash their hands afterward. And you don't give them hand wipes and there's no chance to wash or whatever. So they're sitting there feeling all psychologically soiled. And what's then set up is somebody working for the project is walking across the room and just so happens to trip at that point and drop, you know, the books they were holding and how likely is the person to get up to help pick them up. And if they just sat there and told you about something rotten they had done and are sitting there stewing in that, they're more likely than an average subject to get up and help at that point. If, however, after they've just told you about the rotten thing they've done, they've had a chance to like go wash up or something and they're no more likely to. They've washed away their sins. They've got no particular implicit need to go do something to make up for that soiled, stomach, cringy sense they have about how they were at that point in the past. It's so, so amazing. Just the number of meta. Since I started learning about this, this stuff, I mean, you just see it in everyday life, and it's it's uh, just mind blowing. And and as it, your mind blows, disgusting <laughs> neurons all across the room here. Yes. 
I so I started with the uh, at the beginning of of the program asking um, what uh, you know how you're going to use this stuff in real life, and and this is again I'm this is, this podcast can be uh, a little all over the place, but this is this is something <laughs> that I have told so many people about that have helped that's helped so much in my, in my own relationships is um, is the idea of of you get done um uh you're in in this relationship with this person that you love and you you have a fight we all have fights and then um and then afterwards uh you start fighting about other things that weren't what the initial fight was (laughs) was about this is something everyone every relationship counselor in the world should know about this stuff and it should be the first this should be 101 the first thing you know (laughs) once you sit down this is so cool and accounts for more like relationship misery out there, sort of heterosexual relationship misery, having to do with something about a sex difference on the average, not always the case, but a sex difference in one aspect of how the nervous system works. Okay, so you get into a horrible fight and argument with your beloved of the opposite sex and you both have turned on what's called the sympathetic nervous system which is adrenaline and you're all aroused and your face is flushed and all that's going on at that point so you're in the middle of this fight and you've both turned on your sympathetic nervous system which is the fear fight flight fight it's the fight part here it's adrenaline your heart's racing you're flushed you're all agitated and hooray whoever it is who needs to say i'm sorry finally says it and the other person seethes at them for a couple of seconds and hooray it's all over with and in so many relationships something that is reliably the case there's a sex difference at that point which is the guy is all over it and now wants to go get some like you know sesame peanut noodles someplace or other and the woman suddenly brings up some other point of conflict from 11 and a half years before and as long as we're at it I have never fully expressed myself about and often running with that one. Oh my God, what's that about? It's got to do with the sex difference physiologically. When the argument is over with, when a point of sympathetic arousal is over with, there's the sex difference. The sympathetic nervous system shuts off faster in males than females. It goes back to baseline faster. Okay, this kind of sounds familiar. For example, that's what occurs after orgasms. And thus that like cliched sex difference of she wants to talk for a while afterward about and he's like asleep and snoring within two seconds because his sympathetic nervous system has just gone into a coma. Same thing in this case. Okay, so we've got one of those like circumstances here where now it's two minutes later, the male sympathetic nervous system is back at baseline and has forgotten the whole thing. And the female sympathetic nervous system is still churning away in this agitated state. And what does your brain do at this point? An awful lot of what your brain is deciding it's feeling is by canvassing what's going on in your body. This is an idea that's been around for about a century. And it's the reason why, like, if you give somebody muscle relaxants, it relaxes their muscles, and that's great if they're a gymnast who's got a spasm. If you've got somebody with an anxiety disorder, you give them muscle relaxants. And 
because their muscles are forcibly more relaxed at that point. The person sits there and says, my life is just as crummy and miserable as it was like an hour ago, but whoa, I'm so relaxed right now. I'm almost like drooling out of my chair here. It must not be so bad. Part of what your body is doing is deciding how emotionally aroused it feels by checking things like if your stomach is clenched, how fast is your heart beating or you flushed, whatever. So you've got the male who's back at baseline and as far as his brain is concerned, his body is hibernating and you've got the female who has that sympathetic arousal longer. Whoa, I'm still flushed. Whoa, my heart's still beating kind of fast. Whoa, I'm still feeling agitated. I know it's because of that jerky thing he did back in the Reagan administration to me and we need to talk about that all over again right now. It's this sex difference. Again, you know, you're required by law to say tremendous individual differences on the average. This is not always the case, but on the average, female sympathetic nervous systems shut off after arousal slower than males do. And if you're left there with this aroused vacuum of explanation, our minds fill them in. It is amazing what our mind is able to fill in and, and, and justify and just how much of, how much of our everyday kind of explanations for why we behave about, about a certain thing and, and why we feel this way about uh, this, these sets of policies are, are just simply these uh, grounded in, the, in these kind of physical realities, how well you're doing, how, it, I mean, how, how closely are our physical and psychological pain tied together? Indistinguishable, you know, insular cortex we heard before can't tell the difference between disgusting food and disgusting acts. Another part of your brain called the anterior cingulate um, for your basic mammal, it tells you if there's painful, scary things happening to your body. By the time you get to fancy, socially complex species like us, it also tells you when you're thinking about or observing someone in pain where you are feeling their pain. The same neurons activate. And that's why if it's, you know, a loved one who's desperately, you're frantic with the agony of it because those neurons can't tell the difference between literal pain and the metaphorical pain of recognizing someone else is in an aversive state and where you are responsive to their, you're feeling these neurons can't tell the difference. It's scaldingly painful to those neurons because it's not a metaphor for them. And someone else's pain could be the most painful thing in the universe for us. I've, and this is one of the scary things with, uh, with, with pain pills uh, to me is because I, I was on pain pills for about a year because of, a, because of an injury and uh, quickly discovered that they were just as good at uh, fixing a bad day as they were fixing a, a, a bad foot. Um, yep. <laughs> or flipped another way, um, you look at sociopaths who are pathologically unmoved by the pains of anybody else. They people are pawns. They're remorseless, etc. And one of the most interesting biological findings about sociopaths is uh, they have very high pain thresholds. They don't feel a whole lot of pain. Their autonomic nervous systems are not particularly responsive to pain. How are they supposed to feel anybody else's pain when their basic capacity for it winds up being blunted? Yeah, this is like bodily nuts and bolts playing out in the realm of behaviors with like staggering consequences. So uh, I have such a limited amount of time to ask you everything in the world that uh, that I want to. Um, uh, so here here's a big one. Um, I've never gotten 
um, as as much of as I've read, but it's not any more about than any other subject, I suppose. But as much as I have read and I've seen various lectures and various things about depression, I'm, I've never seen uh, terribly satisfying answers for exactly how depression works and how it's serving a function and and what evolved function there might be. Um, it, it, I mean, fear is something that it seem it's it just makes so much sense. You have this fear stuff, and then you run, you get the hell out of there, away from danger. Um, depression doesn't seem like it has uh, this the same very tangible benefit. Um, that's because I think there's no benefit. I think you're absolutely right. There's a whole school of oh, I don't know what might be called almost Darwinian psychiatry, trying to figure out where various disorders come from. Psychiatric disorders and obsessive compulsive disorder is all about self-cleansing and obsessive is about hygiene and purity and things. And okay, that's like, that's an animal thing that it makes sense. You should be worried about dirty stuff and unhygienic stuff. And it's just a pathological version of that. And anxiety is a pathological version of watch your back. There's things in the world you better be vigilant about. And anxiety is where you've decided everything's threatening. And the only way to deal with it is to come up with 11 different coping responses all at once. And they're mutually contradictory and ruin your life. Those make sense. Depression is the exception. People have argued, okay, depression evolved as a cry for help. It's a call for social support. You know, be clinically depressed or be around someone who's clinically depressed and people don't run to help them after the first like two hours of dealing with it. And then it's just, come on, pull yourself together kind of thing. It doesn't work that way. It's a way to conserve energy in challenging times because you kind of mothball yourself. That it's there's no adaptive advantage. All it is is pathology, and I think it's the pathology of being smart enough to feel profound pain and pain of the deepest kind. Um, if you're a non-human primate, you can fall into a clinical depression. And this is not depression-like behavior in some like abstract scientific jargony way. This is a clinical depression. You look at the biology of a baboon who is clinically depressed, and it's virtually identical to a human. When would they get depressed? This is a female whose infant has died. Whoa, it makes sense. This is a young adult male chimp whose elderly mother has just died. You know, you get the capacity for feeling on that realm. And I think it's an unavoidable sort of emergent property of it. And then you get to us, we're on top of all of that. We can also sit there and not only think about our like baby who's not doing well, but one on the other side of the planet or this baby and terrified mother who were buried in, in lava when when Pompeii and Herculaneum erupted and you go there and you look at them and you see the casts of people and, oh my God, that must have been so terrifying. They've been dead for 2,000 years. Or, oh my God, the poor Navi home tree has been blown up in Avatar. They're not real, they're pixels. As soon as you get us in that range where we can do that and then lurking the cloud behind everything else is the knowledge that you and everyone you know and love are going to die someday 
you can't have that much smarts about the nature of the world's pain, I think, without depression being this pathological breakdown of the whole damn system that happens in 15% of us. And I think at the end of the day, the miracle is that it's only 15% and not 100% of us, that 85% of us have the coping means to keep all that reality at bay most of the time. Speaking of coping means, can you, something that fascinates me, can you explain learned helplessness and how that comes about? Yeah, it's, it's sort of a cognitive way of defining what depression is. I mean, anxiety is when you think there is menace all around you and unjustified, and your belief is, I can still cope with it. And you can cope with it by rearranging the silverware and making sure it's perfectly symmetrical and parallel, or by counting numbers in your head, or by counting rosaries or whatever sort of obsessive thing you, or you can do it in your elaborate who's getting uncontrollable shocks. And you're wondering if I stand at this end of the cage, will it stop? If I jump up and down, will it stop? If I do this, those are anxious attempts at coping. What learned helplessness is, is the transition to you've given up because you're hopeless and you're helpless and why bother? There's not a damn thing you can do. That's the transition to depression. Anxiety is about trying to cope with things that aren't really threatening you and coping in the most ineffectual chicken with a head cut off kind of way. Depression is when you've now transitioned into giving up. And the cognitive way of defining a depression is learned helplessness. The emotional way of defining a depression is an inability to feel any pleasures left in life. They're one and the same. That's exactly what learned helplessness is. So a rat in this environment that's learned that uh, that life is full of unpredictable, uncontrollable shocks and there's nothing that it can do about it and it learns this uh, helplessness stuff. Um, but then you can put it in an environment where there is solutions to it and it will have a hard time. It, it, it will, you could take a rat that hasn't experienced any of this that can pick right up on, uh, Oh, I hit this lever and the shock stops or something like that. And the rat that's learned helplessness, um, has a much more difficult time with this. Yeah. And that's where the pathology is the most extreme. I mean, it's a good thing to recognize the difference between stuff you can control and can't control. If you're going to beat yourself over trying to, I should have been able to prevent X when you had no, I mean, that's the Alcoholics Anonymous prayer. Give me the wisdom to tell the difference between that, the serenity prayer. What the true pathology of learned helplessness is about is exactly what you say. Okay, when I'm in this room and this shock happens uncontrollably, there's nothing I can do and I'm just going to curl up into a fetal ball and be a wreck at that point. But thank God, now I'm in a different setting where there is control, there is efficacy, there are levers I can press to control things. The pathology of depression and learned helplessness is... You just overextend what you learned in that one awful setting and you decide this is the whole world. And an awful lot of sort of one of the most effective psychotherapies for depression and cognitive behavioral therapy is sitting there and saying, well, yes, you are right. That parent abandoned you when you were young. Yes, you are right. You failed at whatever. Yes, you were right. That relationship 
sort of crashed and burned. But that doesn't mean that everybody's going to abandon you or you're going to fail at everything or you're, you are cognitively distorting that legitimate experience into an entire worldview. And what you need to now start learning therapeutically is little baby steps of exploration, seeing that, yeah, it happened that time, but that's not what's going trying to counter that learned helplessness and the countering process being what's been termed learned optimism. Mm. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people could use uh, a lot more of that. That's uh, that's one of the more. I, I there's been points in my life when I when I uh, I wish I would have learned optimism a lot earlier because it it is uh, amazing how quickly you can kind of become blind to opportunities in the world that actually do exist when you have convinced yourself um, that they're not out there. What what is how how does learned optimism? I mean, I, I guess you just kind of explained it. I've just never really heard of this before. Just it, it in fact was coined by the psychologist Martin Seligman, who's one of the like giants in the field. He's the person who discovered and termed learned helplessness. And as his career went by, what he got more and more interested in were the individuals, individual humans, individual monkeys, individual like sea slugs or whatever, who cope better than average and are resilient and do these nutty, crazy things like growing from adversity instead of coming apart at the seams. And what are they doing that's so adaptive? And what are the features of their coping responses? And how can that be generalized to the rest of us? And what they tend to be very good at is when things go bad, they externalize the explanation. This really is not a measure that I am a total like failure of a dork and this is destined to be the outcome every single, here's the external reason why things went bad this time. I didn't get enough sleep the night before the test. They have it in for people like me. They, here's why they had already decided they were going to give this position to whoever. So I really, and when things go well, they internalize and decide they're captains of the ship and thank god i was at the helm for that and look at this terrific outcome often that's totally irrational and often it was their own damn fault that the outcome was bad or they had nothing to do with the good outcome but what that resilience is often about is that you are really really good at not turning adversity into a chronic trait in how you think of yourself. I mean, every one of us was this like pathetic dork when we were in middle school. And most of us have been able to like not decide that's what you're like for the rest of your life. Most of us managed to bypass that one. The people who are spectacular at it are really, really good at turning adversity into here's why it was a singular case rather than what I'm like. Well, I've never really, uh, I've never really thought of conspiracy theorists as as exceptionally resilient people before. Um, <laughs> they are, except that they're simultaneously usually keeping seventeen different conspiracies in their head at once that are mutually contradictory. Um, <laughs> I love this in terms of that. There was one study asking, okay, are conspiracy theorists about UFOs and what's it, Area 52 or whatever, yeah, are they 51. also more likely to think that 9-11 was an inside job or whatever, or is it specific to, and the literature of people looking at that show that, yeah, it's a generalized state of mind. It's not that you're particularly assumed to think that JFK was actually done in by, I don't know, Eleanor Roosevelt or something, um, 
But in the process of those studies, you discover amazing things. Like if you give a person a long questionnaire of, do you think this is actually true? Do you think that going through all the like usual conspiracy things, as long as you space the questions properly, people who at a higher than expected rate believe that say Princess Di was murdered by the British Secret Service also believe that Princess Di is living under an assumed name in Wisconsin right now. Like mutually contradictory stuff. And as long as you don't like make them confronted too much at the same time, it's just keeping all sorts of nonsense in their heads at the same time. It's the effort to keep that stuff apart that may make life a little bit stressful. So I want to talk about altruism a bit because we, I, I have each one of my guests plug a nonprofit of their choice, which uh, by the way, I'd, I'd uh, like to hear yours, but I also want to hear about how uh, this altruism stuff is on the surface seemingly impossible. We we all know about this these stress or <laughs> it's not stressful these selfish genes and how how in the world can all these selfish uh, selfish genes end up doing altruistic things and helping others? Huge huge problem in evolutionary biology. Because it's clear whether you are like a social amoeba that live in these big clonal colonies, or if you're human, things go better if you scratch my back and I scratch yours, if you have reciprocity and it's synergistically helpful and all of that. And that's absolutely clear. And at the same time, it's absolutely clear whoever is the first social amoeba who says, reciprocal altruism is a great thing. So tell you what, I'm going to do something self-sacrificial right now. And all the rest of the amoeba are going to sit there and say like, what a schmuck. And like, there's no mechanism for how you jumpstart it. And that's been a big issue in evolutionary biology, trying to find models for how you jumpstart cooperation. And there's a bunch of models, which almost certainly wind up being relevant to the real world. One of them is you get some isolated population, some land bridge disappears or something. And here's this little population for the next 5,000 years. What do they do? They get inbred. And related organisms tend to be a whole lot more cooperative than unrelated ones. So they've established cooperation, not based on, you know, the golden rule, but based on like an extension of selfish gene thinking. Then the land bridge comes back, whatever it is, the mountain pass opens up and they join the general population. And these guys are wonderful cooperators. And the general population is a bunch of backstabbing cheaters. And what you see is cooperators at that point as a sort of unit, a group within that they're going to outcompete everyone else. And thus cooperation has to spread outward almost like crystallization. That's one of the models for how that happens. So first, what's your nonprofit? And then if I can just keep you for uh, a couple more minutes, because now I want, I want you to tell uh, the story about the troop um, that started cooperating, if that's okay. <laughs> um, so the nonprofit first. Um, save the children. Uh, oh, fantastic. And listeners can always, of course, go to the herewearepodcast.com website and there will be a link and you can learn more. Um, so and that's tremendously cool that you do that, by the way. Oh, thanks. Uh, it's just something to encourage people to pay it forward. So, uh, so, so this is, uh, such a fascinating story this troop that you had been <laughs> that you had been watching for years and years something very drastic happened sometime and which which changed this environment for them and and their culture tremendously 
33 summers of going off to study baboons in East Africa, and this was far and away the most interesting thing. Um, baboons are miserable, lousy creatures. They're, they've got like incredibly high rates of aggression. Um, baboons live in these big social groups out in the grasslands, great ecosystem. So you only have to forage about three hours a day for your food, which means you've got nine hours a day as a smart primate to devote your time to making any, everybody else miserable. All they do is social stress for each other. And baboons are not miserable because lions are hassling them. They're they're being miserable because some other jerk of a baboon is deciding to do that to them. Um, so in other words, I've studied them all these years because they're great models for human psychological stress. So they're rotten and aggressive and competitive unless it's a close relative, in which case they're cooperative and altruistic. Okay. So that's the usual baboon picture. Um, this was my main troop and this was during the mid eighties. And the neighboring troop, troops are scattered a couple of miles apart from each other, maybe five miles or so. The neighboring troop happened to have the incredible good fortune of hiring a tourist lodge in their territory. And along with tourist lodges come garbage dumps. And this was the lodge that, you know, hundreds of guests or whatever, and they would go and dump the garbage in this garbage pit every day. And baboons being really facile, uh, figured out how to get over barbed wire fences and all those things. So this neighboring troop was basically just living off of the garbage there. They stopped foraging. They slept in the trees above the garbage dump so they could sort of waddle down each morning just in time for the dump of garbage. I studied them. They put on like visceral fat. They got borderline diabetes. They got tooth decay, just like westernized humans. So they're sitting there high in the hog living over, over all the food junk thrown out by this lodge and like who knows how this works but males in my troop get metaphorical word of the garbage dump up there and what emerged was every morning about half a dozen males would you know run a mile or two to go to that garbage dump so you're a male baboon trying to horn your way into this troop that's on top of their like gold mine of a garbage dump. You're not getting anywhere near it unless you're a big, aggressive, just hyper, hyper aggressive male there. The other thing is in the morning when the garbage was being dumped, that's when baboons do most of their grooming and socializing. You're willing to give that up. Going and punching it out with a neighboring troop for like leftover drumsticks is more appealing to you than doing social grooming. So the males who go for the garbage from my troop are the most aggressive, least socially affiliated ones. Good. So that's established for a couple of years. And what happens is there's a tuberculosis outbreak in that next troop, because as it turned out, there was tubercular meat at the lodge and a whole bit of corruption. That was a whole story in and of itself. And there was leftover tubercular stuff in there, which a human gets tuberculosis and they last long enough to write 500 page unreadable novels about it. You're a baboon, you get TB and you're dead within a month. It, it just works differently in baboons. So that entire troop is decimated by TB as are the males from my troop who were over there eating garbage. So it kills them. It kills them fairly soon. And what you're left with now is half the number of adult males as usual. Suddenly there's twice as many females as males. And most importantly, who are the guys who are left? These are the nice guys. These are the more socially affiliated guys who are not aggressive and are not prone towards it. And what that did was absolutely transform the culture of the troop. 
they became like for want of a better word, scientific jargon, they were nice to each other. There were lower levels of aggression, higher rates of grooming. Males groomed each other. Adult male baboons do not groom each other. Males in this troop groomed each other. Lower stress hormone levels. You're in a bad mood. You go and sulk instead of beating up somebody smaller, less displacement aggression, total transformation of sort of the culture. And that's a legit word in this case of that troop. Okay, so that's wonderful. That's cool. But then you look at something even more interesting, which is male baboons leave the troop they grow up in. They leave it around puberty. They move into a new troop. They pick up and they move two miles or they move 50 miles and sort of fight their way up the hierarchy in the new troop. And they leave home at that point. So you go away for 10 years and you come back and you look at this troop and 10 years later, there's still these nice guys. It's still this commune, except all the males who survived around the time of the TB, that first generation of nice guys, they've been dead for years. Who are the adult males in this troop now? Guys who grew up elsewhere, who joined this troop as jerky, aggressive adolescent males when this new culture was established and somehow they learned we don't do crap like that here. We don't beat up on smaller individuals. They assimilated this culture. This culture was transmitted multi-generationally. And this is a sentence that would have given a social anthropologist a stroke 50 years ago. You only find culture and cultural transmission in humans. You find in all sorts of other chimps make tools. They teach their kids how to use it. It's transmitted multi. And here was a culture of low aggression and high social affiliation that was being transmitted multi-generationally. And that one lasted for about 20 years in that troop. And what a lot of my work was at that point is, so had a new guys joining in, what's the process by which they learn? We don't do stuff like that here. So Outside of waiting for a rotten batch of uh, protein powder, um, what, what can what can my listeners um, possibly think about doing if they, if they want to help create a more cooperative society? Well, I think it's one of those where, like, short of being able to yes, give TB to just the right sort of folks out there, um, that seemed to be viscerally the the clearest take home message from that, but a, a slightly broader one. I think the main thing about it is grounds for optimism. Like baboons are literally the textbook example of primates evolving to be highly, highly aggressive with male-male domination, male hierarchies and male domination over females. You look in primatology textbooks and they are the textbook example. And what do you see? All it took was one generation of this dramatic social change. And these baboons were like no textbook baboons in the universe. What's the most important sort of point that comes out of that? If baboons have the capacity for that much social malleability and flexibility, we don't have a leg to stand on if we say there's certain unsavory things about humans that are inevitable. Well, thank you so much for your time, Robert Sapolsky. This was a really, a really, really big treat for me. And Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad we finally connected yeah, after all out. these years. And thank you, listeners, for being such inquisitive, interesting people. And I'll talk to you next week. Was that a fun episode or what, guys? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I liked making it. You may have heard me a little nervous. I was like starstruck. <laughs> Robert Sapolsky's like my Michael Jordan. And so that was so awesome. I'm hoping to have him back on again 
sometime real soon when I'm back through the area and our schedules align. And thank you, everybody, for um, helping me make my many endeavors possible by pledging on Patreon um, monthly so far. Any, people have been pledging anywhere from $25 to $1 a month, and uh, I've been able to get some new equipment, and it, everything's basically going to my documentary right now, but, um, but I have a million different projects, if you've been listening to the show uh, you know about, and so that's all going toward those. Um, all of my money goes back into my work. Well, other than the money that I spent foolishly, but uh, <laughs> but the rest of it goes back into my work. Um, and I I don't have a I don't have a home or a car, and so literally uh, almost everything that I that I have goes into doing shows and and traveling and putting out more content so i very much appreciate the support and as always check out the laughable app if you want the very best comedy podcast app that there is if you want to never miss an episode of a podcast that me or any of your favorite comedians is on laughable app is the only way that you can subscribe to an individual comedian if that doesn't appeal to you if you're like well who cares why would i want that i don't know why you'd be saying that to yourself but some of the other things are is that you as a here we are podcast listener it will help me understand where my listeners are uh, with um, much more specificity than other apps out there and i can figure out where I can go to, where my shows will be the most successful, and so where I can take a chance on, say, doing a live Here We Are podcast, where I can take a chance on um, trying out uh, new stand-up shows that I'm working out, that sort of thing. So it just helps me out tremendously for you guys to be, uh, even if you download the Laughable app and never use it, it would help me out, but I think it will help you out tremendously if you... Uh, why am I saying tremendously a tremendous amount of time all of a sudden uh, but if you if you download it I, I think that you're going to uh, see the many benefits right away so just give it a shot um, with that uh, we have some more live episodes coming up uh, next week I'm not sure what next week is going to be we had one in uh, Nashville it was like hardly any audience whatsoever because I tried a new a new marketing technique, <laughs> yeah, trial and error, and uh, and then we had a, a cool one. I'm still seeing if the sound came out okay, but we did one live from the Psychedelic Science Conference 2017, and so so that's a fun one. Um, as long as we get the audio uh, worked out, and um, and a few more coming. So stay tuned for future fun and learning and laughs thank you all for listening those of you that listen all the way to the end you know who you are you tell me you come to my shows afterwards and you let me know that you're my favorites and then we hug and i say thank you for being my favorite because i need more i haven't said all of this to all of you but this is what i've meant to say is i've said it with my eyes uh what i meant to say is that i love you deeply and <laughs> and i care about you and uh yeah that's this this is what you get for listening all the way to the end there's this weird i make things a little awkward and and we get to know each other on an intimate level so thank you for, <laughs> for listening and i'll talk to you next week
let's say uh, Seinfeld was on an island and he was blowing Boris Karloff. What would it, what would that be like? <laughs> it might go something like this. Oh, Mr. Karloff, I loved you and Frankenstein, and I love giving you a blowjob. Why, Mr. Seinfeld, I'd love having you 